The following is produced by Artisan Church. Welcome to the Artisan Church Podcast, a weekly broadcast of Artisan Church in Rochester, New York. To learn more about Artisan Church or to support the ministry, visit www.artisanchurch.com. Well, in our little journey through these gospel stories that uh, has been going on for a few weeks now, in what the church calendar calls the season after Epiphany, um, tonight's passage is the most challenging and most bizarre and most confusing of all of them. I don't know how closely you were listening when I was reading that gospel passage a few minutes ago, but was there any sense as I was reading that you, that you had no idea what was going on? It's okay to admit that. I felt that way until about Thursday this week when I was preparing a sermon on, the, on this passage. But it's really kind of weird. It picks up where we left off last week. And if you were with us last week, you remember that Jesus had gone into the synagogue in his hometown and was preaching there and had read from the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. And we left it with a kind of a little mini cliffhanger where he said, today these words have been fulfilled in your hearing. It's not like he might have been laying claim to being the Messiah. And I promised you that there might be trouble ahead for him, and and, uh, I'm glad you came back for the exciting conclusion. Um, But actually, the first response of the people after hearing this um, fairly alarming statement is is positive. The response comes in verse uh, 22, and it says, all spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his mouth. And so initially, there was a nice response. (laughs) And I've noticed in my studying of the Gospels that Jesus kind of has this, uh, this modus operandi where just when people are starting to get close to him and starting to follow him and be really happy with everything that he's saying, he will let fly with something that completely freaks them out and sends them away or makes them want to kill him. (laughs) Have you noticed this at all? Do you remember the famous story of Jesus feeding the multitudes of people with a little, you know, the little boy's fishes and bread? And he feeds them and there's, you know, 5,000 people all ready to follow him anywhere he might lead after seeing this miraculous event. And then immediately he says... Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no place in the kingdom of God. And suddenly he's back to 12 again. (laughs) People are like, I'm not sure that I want to be on board for that part. Why don't you call me again when you're making fish? Um, And a sort of similar thing seems to happen here in this passage where the people are speaking well of him and commenting on how gracious he is. and, And wow, he's a really powerful teacher. Maybe he, uh, you can sort of hear the gears turning. Maybe he is the Messiah, long promised and awaited. And then he continues on and says some things that really anger them and lead to their wanting to cast him off the edge of a cliff. Now, that's where we get 
to the confusing part because if you read that, and I don't know about you, but when you read that passage or heard that passage read, you may have wondered why they were even angry. First of all, what on earth is Jesus talking about? And secondly, why did that particular thing that he said make them angry? And that's what I'd like to talk a little bit about uh, tonight as we're looking at this passage. The part I'm, I'm referring to is, it starts in verse 25. And by the way, if you are following along, you can see on the screen, this is page 835 in the Red Bibles, which are under your chair. But in verse 25, Jesus, or the end of 24, Jesus says, Truly I tell you, no prophet is accepted in the prophet's hometown. The feeling I get from that, by the way, is just that, you know, these are the people who saw this kid grow up from knee-high to a grasshopper, right? And now he's back speaking prophetically to them, and they're like, well, I changed your diapers, man. <laughs> you know, that's kind of the th- Like, imagine if my son Abel, a lot of you know my son Abel, you know, you've known him since he was little, and he's still little, but imagine him coming back at 30 and, and after being gone for a while and, and making audacious claims and preaching like he knew more than you about everything. And it's that kind of feel, you know, no prophet is accepted in, the, in that prophet's hometown. Um, then he goes on, verse 25, and this is where it gets good and, and confusing and interesting. But the truth is, there were many widows in Israel in the time of Elijah when the heaven was shut up three years and six months and there was a severe famine over all the land. Yet Elijah was sent to none of them. And here the NRSV uses the word except to a widow at Zarephath in Sidon. Um, I think what it really means is that instead... Elijah was sent to this widow in Zarephath. And why does this matter? Well, because Sidon is not part of Israel. (laughs) And so you have a gathering of religious Jews and a Jewish teacher, Jesus, who's reminding them that God did some pretty incredible work through Gentiles. Let's turn, in fact, turn back with me to... Uh, 1 Kings chapter 17, and if you're in the Red Bibles, you can skip to, just go back to 282 to make it easy on you. 1 Kings 17, and I'm going to read uh, verses 8 through 16. This is the story that Jesus is referring to here about Elijah and the widow. And when I start reading this, some of you will recognize this, but um, then the word of the Lord came to him, him being Elijah the prophet, go now to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon. And live there, for I have commanded a widow there to feed you. So he set out and went to Zarephath. When he came to the gate of the town, a widow there was gathering sticks. He called to her and said, Bring me a little water in a vessel so that I may drink. As she was going to bring it, he called to her and said, Bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. But she said, As the Lord your God lives, I have Nothing baked, only a handful of meal in a jar and a little oil in a jug. I am now gathering a couple of sticks so that I may go home and prepare it for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. She's not particularly optimistic about an economic recovery. Elijah said to her, do not be afraid. Go and do as you have said, but first... Make me a little cake of it and bring it to me, and afterwards make something for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, 
The jar of meal will not be emptied, and the jug of oil will not fail until the day that the Lord sends rain on the earth. She went and did as Elijah said, so that she, as well as he and her household, ate for many days. The jar of meal was not emptied, neither did the jug of oil fail, according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah. So here's what happened. Elijah was sent to a widow outside the religious community. And the hearers in the synagogue, when Jesus was talking about this story, would have been familiar with that. But I think probably they would have conveniently avoided that part of the story. Just as we feel very free conveniently to avoid certain parts of Bible stories that make us uncomfortable um, or don't seem to paint us in the best light and that sort of thing. So what Jesus says here in verse 25, he says, the truth is there were plenty of widows in Israel. There were plenty of Jewish widows that God could have sent Elijah to to work this miracle. And that's not where God sent them. (laughs) Sent him. He sent him instead to the widow in Zarephath of Sidon, a Gentile. Then he goes on to refer to a different story about the prophet Elisha. Now, you remember from our Prophets Week in Flannel Graph, the one all the way to the right here, that there was Elijah and his uh, understudy, so to speak, was Elisha. And Elijah was taken up and Elisha continued on this ministry. And here's an interesting story about Elisha. This is in 2 Kings chapter 5, page 293 if you're in the Red Bibles. I'll read the first 10 verses. Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Aram, now Aram is not in Israel, was a great man and in high favor with his master because by him the Lord had given victory to Aram. Now, when the Old Testament says the Lord gave somebody victory, that doesn't always mean that it was the Lord working in his own people. You know, this is just how the Old Testament talks about whoever had victory in battle, the Lord must have given it to to them. Uh, And so it's not actually a good thing that the Lord gave victory to Aram from the Israelites' perspective. In fact, it's just the opposite. Uh, Naaman, the man, though a mighty warrior, suffered from leprosy. Now the Arameans, on one of their raids, had taken a young girl captive from the land of Israel, and she served Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, If only my Lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria, Israel, he would cure him of his leprosy. So Naaman went in and told his Lord just what the girl from the land of Israel had said. And the king of Aram said, Go then, and I will send along a letter to the king of Israel. He went, taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten sets of garments. He brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, When this letter reaches you, know that I have sent to you my servant, Naaman, that you may cure him of his leprosy. When the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to give death or life that this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? Just look and see how he is trying to pick a quarrel with me. But when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent a message to the king, why have you torn your clothes? Let him come to me, 
that he may learn that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and halted at the entrance of Elisha's house. Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go, wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored, and you shall be clean. And the story goes on to describe how Naaman at first thought that this was just some kind of Jewish ritual that that had to do with temple cleanness, and, and he didn't want to do it. But then his servants say, no, you should really do this. He means go bathe in the river seven times. And Naaman goes and bathes in the river seven times and, in fact, is healed of his leprosy. And it's this story that Jesus alludes to in the second half of his um, little rant here. Verse 27, he says, there were also many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha. And none of them was cleansed. Instead, Naaman the Syrian was cleansed. Now, is Syria part of Israel? It's not now. We know that all too well. And it wasn't then either. Jesus has effectively said, you may be ready to reject me, but the truth is, when there are prophets around, God doesn't always send them to Israel. When there's miracles to be done and people need to be a part of that, God doesn't always use the religious establishment to make that happen. In fact, think of the time with the widow and Elijah and Naaman with Elisha and how God used those Gentiles. Now, you may, I don't know how much you know about Jewish ceremonial law, but people who are not Jewish by birth or converted, were unclean, not to be interacted with or touched or anything. And so Jesus pointing out the fact that God did these great miracles through these Gentiles was not a very popular thing for him to have said. Apparently the people of God were too sinful or out of touch or not attentive enough or they'd lost their way somehow. And Jesus is saying, that's what happens. If you're not going to take advantage of serving the one true God, then, then the one true God will do something about that and he'll look elsewhere, right? And this suggestion infuriates the people. Uh, and so moments before they had been enthralled with Jesus and said, oh, he speaks so eloquently and he's so gracious and boy, is that the carpenter's son? I, it's just, I can't believe it. Maybe he's the Messiah. And then he speaks against the religious establishment and they want to throw him off a cliff. And I think this story speaks clearly about what it means to fulfill the role of a prophet. Now, you may remember, I, I did give this uh, message, the fourth one in the flannel graph series, and I love that we can keep pointing back to this, but um, that was a message about the prophets of Israel, primarily, and you may recall that, that uh, the definition of a prophet when you're talking about biblical prophets is not necessarily what we think of when we hear the word prophet. Um, when I hear the word prophet, I think of Nostradamus or um, Miss Cleo, um, you know, people who can predict the future or read minds or psychic kind of stuff, right? That's not the role of a prophet uh, in, the, in the Bible. Now, there's, of course, some prophecy, some foretelling that happens. Uh, 
when these prophets speak. But the primary role of a prophet is to speak God's word into the lives of the people around him or her. Sometimes this means speaking God's word to people who have never heard it before. In other words, speaking God's word to people outside the religious community, outside the church or outside the the Jewish uh, culture. Sometimes that's what it means. But far more often what it means is speaking God's truth to the people who are already supposed to know it, (laughs) people who have already heard it and are failing to put it into action. And so the prophets were not popular people. I mean, they get their name on the book now, but they did not have happy lives. Because sometimes when you speak God's truth to people, people don't want to hear it. Now, sometimes I think uh, nowadays some church leaders, when they have made people angry and are being called to account for making people angry, say, well, I'm just, I'm just being a prophet, you know, you're just, you don't want to hear God's word. Well, no, in fact, you're kind of a jerk. Um, and you should, you should be nicer about things. Uh, and so you may want to have a little bit of skepticism when you hear somebody take that title upon himself or herself. I'm just a prophet, and if you don't like what I have to say, it's because I'm speaking God's word and you don't want to hear God's word. But that's a little bit, it's a little bit of a, you have to have some discernment um, with this. But the model of prophecy in the Bible is that it sometimes makes people angry. Obviously, we have the story of Jesus that we've just read, who's, who's just kind of a, a sneaky ninja move away from being thrown off a cliff. Um, we also have the prophet Jeremiah, whose writings Anna read earlier tonight. Or did Jesse read that? Which one did you guys read? I can't remember. Okay. Anna read the prophet Jeremiah. She was standing right there. And Jeremiah, um, I don't know how much this we got into when we did the prophet's week, But he did not have an easy time of it. He was attacked physically by his brothers. He was beaten. He was put in the stocks in the center of town and locked up. He was imprisoned. He was threatened with death. His life was not fun. He was speaking a God truth that people did not want to hear. He was calling them to repentance because they were consumed with idolatry. And the people didn't want to hear that, and so they caused him harm. Jesus spoke a God truth that people didn't want to hear, that truth being that this great faith that is now a nice exclusive club is very soon going to be open to everybody. And for those of us in the room who are not Jewish by birth, most of us, if not all, that's a wonderful thing. But to the people who are already part of the club, uh, they didn't want to hear it. And so I think, and I would suggest to you and challenge you somewhat, that all of us are called to be prophets in our own lives in some way or another. In other words, There will be a time in everybody's life of faith where God wants you to say something to somebody that that person is not going to want to hear.
Now, I'd like you to think for a minute about that and think for a minute about what it is that God might be prompting you to say to somebody that might be hard to say or hard to hear, but that you really feel convicted is God's truth. And to whom is God calling you to say that? Again, it might be that it's somebody outside the community of faith that needs to hear a challenging word from God. But that's, that's evangelism. That's a different gift. <laughs> what I'm talking about is prophecy, being a prophet. So more often than not, this is something that you would be saying to somebody who is already in the walls of the church. Not this church, of course. But you know, you know, Christians. <laughs> it's, it certainly wouldn't be me that you'd be being called to say something challenging to. So if that's what you think, just get that right out of your mind. No, don't. But uh, be gracious about it if you do. <laughs> so maybe you have somebody in your head or, or some group in your head, some, some prophetic word that you think God might be stirring in you to say to somebody. And while that's stirring, let's look back at that Jeremiah passage really briefly. What was it that Jeremiah said when he was called to be a prophet? Who remembers? He said, Ah, Lord God, truly I do not know how to speak, for I am only a boy. He had an excuse. <laughs> Now, most of us in the room, there's a few of us in the room who could say, I'm only a boy, and that would be an acceptable excuse, or at least it would be true. <laughs> I don't know if it would be an acceptable excuse. But for the rest of us, we have to come up with a different excuse, don't we? I can't just say, I'm a boy. I'm 32 years old now. But I'll, I'll come up with an excuse. Just give me a couple of minutes. Ah, Lord God, truly, yeah, I don't know how to speak, for I am only a... Uh, what is it? What's your excuse? I know you have one. Here's how the Lord responds when he heard Jeremiah's excuse. <laughs> Do not say, I am only a boy. For you shall go to all to whom I send you, and you shall speak whatever I command you. <laughs> Do not be afraid of them. For I am with you to deliver you. And so do not say, I am only a whatever it is that you would say. Because you're going. <laughs> you're going to say it. But the good news is that God is with you when you do that sort of thing. And he'll protect you and give you courage in those things. So, having exhorted you all to be prophets, to exercise the gift of prophecy as I've just defined it, now I will, I will soften that just a little bit, because the last passage from today's lectionary readings that I want to share with you is from 1 Corinthians 13, and it offers an interesting counterpoint to the 
way we express these spiritual gifts, prophecy included. Many of you have heard this at weddings, and it's a wonderful passage to read at a wedding, but it's not really about being married. If I speak in the tongues of mortals and of angels, but do not have love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give away all my possessions, and if I hand over my body so that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not envious or boastful or arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will come to an end. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will come to an end. For we know only in part, and we prophesy only in part. But when the complete comes, the partial will come to an end. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became an adult, I put an end to childish ways. For now we see in a mirror, dimly, but then we will see face to face. Now I know only in part, then I will know fully, even as I have been fully known. And now, faith, hope, and love abide, these three. And the greatest of these is love. So yes, go prophesy. Speak God's truth into the lives of the people around you, especially the people within the church who have lost their way. But never, ever do that outside of love. And don't do it in a way that makes you, people think that you have all the knowledge because your knowledge is partial. And don't do it in a way that assumes that your prophetic word is the never-ending reality because that's going to come to an end. But what will not ever come to an end is love. And so if you have to choose between being prophetic and being loving, it's pretty clear which one you choose. Ideally, you do both. <laughs> uh, let me say a prayer for us. Heavenly Father, we have been called to be prophets. Some of us all the time and some of us once in a great while, but all of us are called at some point or another to speak your truth into the lives of your people when they need to hear it. And so we ask for courage to do it when we are called to. But more than that, we ask for love so that when we do speak prophetically into people's lives, they would know that it comes from you because you are love. 
give you thanks for the great example of Jesus who was both a tremendous prophet and the embodiment of your love. And we pray that we would have the strength to follow his example in all things. And it's in his name that we pray and ask these things. Amen. Well, Jesus is the embodiment of God's love. And it's in his sacrifice uh, that we are made whole. And so, as always, our response to hearing the word proclaimed is the communion table, where we remember his death and resurrection, and we reenact it until he comes back, like the Bible says. And so, if you are following Jesus, this is an open table here at Artisan, and we would love to have you come and be part of that. You don't have to belong to any particular denomination or church, but you need to belong to Jesus. (laughs) And remember that that's not by your power anyway, so if you feel like you suck at belonging to Jesus, that's kind of the point. Uh, I just I always like to err on the side of people feeling like they should approach this table if they're not sure. Um, but if you truly are not in that place, it's okay not to, not to be part of this um, and just to be an observer and to, to sit and pray. But um, if you're following Jesus, come and tear a piece of that bread and remember his broken body and dip it in either the wine or the juice, whichever is more appropriate for you and your family, and remember his blood poured out for you. Um, and remember that he was the prophet whom we follow and the embodiment of God's love. And take that in to yourself and to your own soul. So this table's open. You can come whenever you'd like for the rest of our time together. Um, come as he calls you. This has been the Artisan Church Podcast. To receive future podcasts, go to www.artisanchurch.com slash podcast or subscribe on iTunes. Thank you for listening.